What's going on, everybody? This is the Sec DevOps Podcast. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. Yes, we have the powerful Marcus Deshaun. <laughs> he works with me at Netflix. Brilliant man. He leads our detection engineering efforts. Uh, really, really wow. smart guy. We have the best conversations at work. <laughs> like so many different topics, is amazing. Welcome to the show. Not usually about security. Yeah, but, not you know. usually. Uh, we do we do have some good conversations about security, but yep. definitely a wide spectrum of topics. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. I would I would love to learn more about your background and just kind of how you got here today. Yeah, I would start with your education and work your way forward. Uh, I think it's very sure. interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I you know I, I sort of made the the strategic mistake of just pursuing my curiosity, uh, which just led me further and further into physics land. And uh, I just didn't stop until I got a PhD, which was, um, so I ended up in nuclear physics, which is, uh, has a lot of different aspects to it. The part that I was studying was more just what's called low energy uh, uh, spectroscopy, which has to do with like experiments in an accelerator where you create some radioactive material right. and then you watch it decay. So it's not a, it's not related to nuclear power or, right, huh? or weapons or anything like that. It's all just like fundamental physics of nuclei. Right. And, um, you know, that's, uh, not exactly, there's not exactly a huge job market there. <laughs> 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 and, uh, but I had already done quite a bit of work with computers by that point. And so I uh, decided, you know, after doing some uh, work in the academic, uh, not, not, I didn't do a postdoc. I did, I got a job at Georgia Tech, mm -hmm. like in the Office of Information Technology. Um, but then after a while of working there, I decided to just go into private industry. So mm -hmm. I looked around and found a startup uh, that was just, uh, you know, I think I was employee 37 at uh, SecureWorks. Mm. Oh, wow. Which was... Um, How big are they now? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. They're pretty huge, I think. They've been... They they were acquired by Dell at one point, and right. then I think, I think they might have spun off again. I know they were talking about it at least. But, um, no, I think they're still Dell SecureWorks right okay. now. I think yeah. so. Um, but in any case, they... At that time, what they had was a s product and a service around the product. It was an intrusion prevention device. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were struggling a bit with, like, the signature set. It was sort of just, like, using an intrusion detection signature set mm -hmm. and trying to use that to block traffic. But false positives are a problem because <laughs> right. now you're, like, interfering with normal traffic on the network. And yep. so I took over, like, managing the signature set and did that for about four years. So it was, uh, I got very, very sensitized to false positive problems right. and like really carefully designing the signatures so that you would block attacks and even like slight variations on it without interfering with production traffic. Mm. So that was a delicate balance and uh, our customers kept it in blocking mode, which means that it wasn't interfering 
a lot of other products at the time because there was no service around it like they'd just be like here's your intrusion prevention device yep, and then, good luck yeah and they'd like <laughs> they'd switch it on and be like oh my god you know mm -hmm. and then they turn it back off or turn it into ids mode right because you'd have to actively manage and tune and whatever yep. and because we were like receiving the alerts we could immediately see if a signature was a problem right and like fix it mm -hmm. yep and so that was like a four-year process I, I was became sort of the eventually I became the chief scientist which just meant like nice. I was kind of doing the security research around like new vulnerabilities new exploits new malware like how can we detect this and block it right nice. mm -hmm. so that was that was really fun I learned a lot um, I had a couple of team members there um, really smart people that I've kept in touch with and then um, John Ramsey, who was the CTO, he uh, helped me uh, get a job at CERT at Carnegie Mellon. Like he, yeah. that was where he came from. Right. And then, um, so I ended up moving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. which is uh, it's a nice place to live, actually. It's like uh, a lot of people don't know much about it. And then, yeah. you know, obviously it has a huge industrial past, right? But yeah. huge. it's Lots of now. History. Yeah, lots of history, but obviously that all kind of collapsed in the 70s and 80s, and so it economically was pretty depressed. But the universities, like, kind of anchored it. So there's, like, University of uh, Pittsburgh and uh, Carnegie Mellon. Right. Carnegie Mellon, sorry. Yeah, Carnegie, yeah. Carnegie <laughs> Mellon. I actually figured and out the uh, the correct pronunciation uh, from the the men who built America, the History Channel uh, miniseries. That was an amazing. I, mean, I told you to watch it, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you mm -hmm. have to check it out when you get a chance. Did you watch that? I haven't seen that one. No. Oh, okay, yeah, Carnegie. Carnegie, Carnegie. Andrew yeah. Carnegie. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so CERT is part of this thing called the Software Engineering Institute, which is a what's a called an FFRDC, a federally yep. funded research and development center. Yeah a little bit like a national lab or something. So mm -hmm. it's chartered by the government and then operated by Carnegie Mellon. Yep. So it's a, uh, they get a, it's like a five year uh, contract and then it gets renewed. They have to like show that they're doing a good job. Right. So it's like, CERT is like a trusted partner with government where you, um, you know, help them make good decisions around cybersecurity effectively, right? right. So. You know, uh, are their contractors doing a good job? Like, you know, and then also our team, Network Situational Awareness, the people, the engineers there had built this tool set called Silk, mm -hmm. which is all about uh, network flow analysis. And at that time, there was no such thing as like big data tools. So right, yeah. they built using like high performance computing stuff, like the MPI library. Uh, which was what you would do to run like code on a Cray computer or whatever, mm. <laughs> right? Well, Cray actually is might be might not use MPI, but anyway, um, yeah. So if you were doing cluster computing, you would use MPI to like pass messages back and forth, right? right? And so that's what they used, and they so they did a lot around like they had to like learn a lot around data localization and yeah. like pro doing filtering locally and then aggregation centrally and like. You know, we learned it was it was kind of an interesting education in those distributed computing concepts before there was Hadoop and things like that. Right. So, and so, um, you know, because they were trying to do it at scale, like for government sized networks, like mm -hmm. all sessions recorded, right? Yeah. Just a just a flow record, not yep. what's in it, but right. just like how many bytes and when did it start? What were the TCP flags? 
And so I was, uh, not right away, but I started became the head of the analysis team. And we were using that tool set on this large amount of data and then trying to like develop uh, situation awareness about the network. So right. how, do you, how do you characterize a large, what was essentially like the largest enterprise network? Mm -hmm. It's like a kind of like a network with many internet gateways, but it, in a way it's just a big enterprise, right? Yeah, right. And so, um, you know, there would be these collectors and then we would get take all the data and try to understand what was happening on the network. What kind of classification and was going on here? Like uh, what were you classifying them as? Uh, do you, are you talking about like classification levels? Like I thought you were like top secret try, no, trying to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Trying to like, uh, figure out like if, uh, one device is on the same network as another device or organizational structure. Oh yeah. So, uh, there's a lot of things you could do. I mean, we, we didn't have like, we didn't have visibility at sort of multiple levels. So like, you know, if you could imagine a large network, you might do things at the gateway and then at deeper inside, right? Like you could collect S flow from switches or yeah. something. And so there's interesting stuff there. You have issues around duplication of data and like, you know, understanding, you know, there you could derive structure and things like that. But um, here it was just kind of like an envelope and a snapshot of what's going on. Gotcha. And so, um, you know, but you could do things like, um, identify, you know, what are all the hosts, which ones are servers, you know, web servers, which ones are email servers, DNS mm -hmm. servers, which ones are the client subnet. And so we would, you know, in some cases, like if we were going to do a really detailed analysis, we'd sort of break down all those traffic types. You know, here's web traffic to our servers or, or web requests to our servers and the responses. Here's our clients like requesting web traffic and getting the answers and and so you could break all that down into known like categories of traffic and then you'd have other mm. and other was always interesting because yep. you could end <laughs> up with like malware infections or that machine in the closet that everyone forgot about right. you know that's running an ftp server right like all that like shadow it sometimes where yep. yeah. you could kind of discover that from the traffic right that's sometimes the best so. things to find. That's like the most interesting in my opinion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where a lot of the, you know, unknown vulnerabilities come from, right? It's like, right. What, well, what is that doing there? Like that's something somebody started 10 years ago and then they left and like nobody knew it was there, right? Like, um, Would you so. do it at uh, Google? <coughs> so yeah, so I, yeah, we, I joined Google in 2011 mm -hmm. and, uh, there I started out uh, in the like core security team on the team that develops the tools for security ops. Right. So it was more of a software engineering team. And there's kind of a story behind how I ended up there because I was not really a software engineer. <laughs> but in any case, um, I kind of had a trial by fire. It's like, okay, here's, here's this giant like code repository right. of C++. And here's this thing that does like streaming data analysis. Mm -hmm. It's a C++ library. You've never programmed in C++ before, but you know, here you go. Why don't well, you like develop Was that this? your role? Yeah, yeah, that was my first, my, my oh Googler my project. Wow. <laughs> and 
<laughs> they were just kind of like, figure it out. Good luck. Like, yeah, and I was like, well, I have programmed before, but not in C++. And I was like, well, you know, I guess learn it. So like, right. I took a class uh, at UCSC, actually, the, you know, this, uh, the Santa Cruz extension here in, right. in Silicon Valley. And uh, really nice... Uh, teacher who like was doing C++ simulations of some VLSI like chip design or whatever and so he like really knew C++ and like right. was a good teacher and so and, and at work I was trying to like you know apply the things as I was learning them and it took longer you know <laughs> any of the other engineers on the project would have done this probably in a couple you know two months or whatever and right. I was like it drug on like I, it was really difficult but um, they were very patient, and eventually I started to become productive and useful. Like, so I uh, collaborated with uh, one of the other engineers there who had built some really amazing real-time like log parsing stuff. Mm -hmm. So as logs were coming in, he was parsing them online and then right. putting them uh, in storage. Mm -hmm. And so that, that system... Um, you know, and the thing is, like, Google has all this, like, custom infrastructure that they built, right, from scratch because just nothing existed. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's all, like, unlike what's out on the outside. But it's, uh, you know, a lot of the open source tools were kind of based on stuff that Google had done internally for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of has some similarities to something like Spark or Flink, like these streaming processing platforms, right? right? Now those are very different just because like in some ways, like the open source infrastructure has advanced. So uh, something like Avro, like Google has protocol buffers internally um, and that became an open source thing mm -hmm. and now it's mm -hmm. gRPC, right? But <coughs> uh, along with the like RPC mechanisms. But the uh, Avro was kind of more of an open source thing. It has some pretty nice aspects to it. Um, and in a way, because they didn't have the legacy problem, like they could design it well from the beginning. So like protobufs, like, because it was just the entirety of Google was <laughs> running these protocol right. buffers, it was hard to like migrate to new features or to like re-engineer and things like that. So mm -hmm. it was just very complicated to get that stuff done. So anyway, you know, I learned a lot about uh, stream processing, big data, <coughs> but all just using the custom Google tools, right? Yep. yep. And so then I actually joined a startup where the idea was use the open source tool set to do kind of the similar types of things. Right. Um, so, you know, internally at Google, we were taking these streams of data and then putting them into database tables. And then there was this whole system that one of the other engineers had designed for batch processing, like scheduled jobs that would uh, take this data, extract these fields, aggregate it in this way. Then you could merge it with another table mm -hmm. and like all this stuff. And then at the end, you have a signal that says, right. hey, something bad's happening. You know? mm -hmm. um, and then there's all the complications of like, well, what if that job fails and these other jobs depend on it and like yep. it keeps failing and then you're a couple hours behind and then it has to go back and rerun those and rerun the dependencies. Right. Like he had to figure all that stuff out, which is like super complicated. Um, but, you know, we had some really interesting capabilities to do analysis. Mm -hmm. And so then it was all about like, you know, uh, leveraging that for the operational needs of the ops team. 
So anyway, so then in the open source world, uh, kind of trying to do some of the same things. And also the company was all about wanting to do um, machine learning approaches. So it was mm -hmm. E8 Security was the name of the company. Um, ended up being a lot of unsupervised learning just because in security, like there's not a lot of labeled data, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not a lot of like, oh, data we know this is bad yeah. and we have all the data and now we can build a model. It's like, okay, you know, maybe you'll have one or two or three real things, but then like you really need hundreds or thousands of real things to like train a model, yep. right? And so that's really hard to come by. And so like a lot of the approaches end up being like, okay, well, let's try to develop some features from the data of things that we think might be a security concern, right? Mm -hmm. So failed logins, right? right? Or like, you know, they accessed the server and received a 500 error, right? Like different types of things like that that would allow you to focus on what are potentially malicious activities and then you kind of like do that across many dimensions and right. then cluster it and say okay well you know based on these features almost all the traffic is just kind of like in this one blob mm -hmm. and then you have this guy over here like what is he doing right and what about this over here right so right. you you can at least start to identify outliers in terms of <coughs> um you know those features that you define yeah so then i went back to google Mm -hmm. Oh, really? I'm not even going to go into all the things I did there. But, yeah. like, <laughs> I worked in access and energy, worked on the Google Wi-Fi product, worked on vendor security, hmm. like contingent workforce and yep. identity and access management for contingent Jeez. workforce. Wow. All Very over the place. diverse. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah, so I've touched on a bunch of different things. And then um, – but then I joined Netflix mm -hmm. and uh, now I'm doing that detection engineering specifically, which yep. is – Sort of my, it's really my dream job, I have to say. Like, that's, really? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it's trying, uh, being able to kind of apply the ideas that I've tried out in different places, but right. like, you know, on the big data infrastructure with, you know, all the data types that we need. Yep. You know, and, you know, over the years, I kind of like developed this framework for understanding what we're trying to do in analysis, mm -hmm. which is, you know, uh, I think as a field, like we don't have a lot of like theory. There's a lot of, of course, you know, you're trying to detect this attack and you're trying to detect that attack mm -hmm. or you're trying to detect that a server is in a bad security state. Right. And it's it's kind of been all over the place like there wasn't a way to kind of bring it together and say well this is what we're trying to do right, right. and like here's the parts that we're doing well and here's the parts we aren't doing well and so i had been working for a long time on understanding like what is that framework how should we understand the problems that we're working on and a lot of people like use the ooda loop model right yep. the, and that was one way like when i was at google i actually kind of broke down like what are all the tools that we have for observe which is kind of like collecting data yep. and like getting it ready right and then orient like yep. okay now we're like processing it and analyzing it and producing something useful right. for a person to then decide what to do mm -hmm. and then take actions like incident response right, right? yep so that sort of that very very much makes sense for an operational workflow uh but it actually over the years i felt that like it doesn't teach you how to build a system correct Right. It just tells you, like, I need orient, you know, I need yeah. observe, orient, design, act. But like 
what does that mean as an engineering problem? Right. Right. Like how, what are the components of the system that I need mm -hmm. in order to make this happen? Right. And work. And like, and also, am I covering all my bases? Like, have I really uh, got a complete analytic system mm -hmm. like I need? Right. And so I've actually uh, ended up in looking closely at this field called multi-sensor multi data fusion. So this is a group of people that developed out of uh, the defense community, yep. and their problem was more around like, okay, we have radar, and we have infrared, and we have visuals, and we have satellite photos and maps, and like we have to fuse all of this into like a real-time picture of the battlefield in their case, right? Hmm. I want to know, like, I'm driving here, and there's a thing over there, and, oh, by the way, that's a tank of this type and whatever, right? Right. But you're fusing all this sensor data together, and then in the end, like, drawing conclusions about it right. that need to be automated because, like, you don't want to be... Oh wait, that sound. What does that yeah, sound that's like? Uh, right, it's like that shadow. <laughs> that shadow looks like kind of a <laughs> right. So you know, it's like Hunt for Red October. You know, you have the guy with the headphones on, mm -hmm. and he can like identify everything. But also, he has the computer that says like, "Oh, that seismic activity," because they didn't have a model for this. Right. <laughs> Sorry, just movie reference. But <laughs> but in any case, like you know, what is that system that would recommend like, "Hey, this we think this is this," right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to build that for security because yeah. I think that, um, you know, first of all, like there's way too much data. Like we certainly so cannot, yeah. yeah, we certainly <laughs> cannot like manually go through everything and then say, oh, well, that looks interesting. You know, let's do something about that. It's like, that's fine during like a hunting, but yeah, like yeah. for continuous monitoring, like we need to be like automatically doing this, right? Yep. And so, anyway, in the data fusion model, like, there's this kind of progression from data to features, like a feature extraction process. Mm -hmm. And then you identify entities. Yep. And so this is kind of key for me, like, in our field, that we have to get into, like, focusing on the entities in our environment, which means, like, users. In an enterprise world, it would be, like, machines or hosts. Mm -hmm. But in cloud environment, like we're dealing with, like, that's not as meaningful anymore. Right. right. Because they come into existence, they go out of existence, mm -hmm. they're constantly. Like constantly churning. Right. right. And so really they're like maybe the application is the thing that's meaningful, right? Because we have a group of machines all serving one application in our case. But um or, you know, a group of containers. Right? Mm -hmm. But in any case, like, you know, that then becomes the unit of analysis. Like right. and so um so once you have identified the entities, then you want to understand relations between entities, mm -hmm. like which users are accessing which applications, what are they doing, right? right. Mm -hmm. And that by itself, you're not, you haven't decided whether it's good or bad. You're right. just like noticing patterns, right? Yep. And then you get to impacts. And so that's what is kind of, that step is called like the situation assessment. Mm -hmm. You want to understand all of these relations that are going on and then is there some security consequence to that right and so that's the hardest step i mean that's the thing that is always and you know but even even if you just did that first part automatically like uh aggregate all your entity information in one yep. place right, right and get it have an asset inventory like we're building right yep. um 
that's already super useful because when you're in the uh, analysis situation, you can be like, well, what is that application? Right. Like, mm -hmm. Who owns it? What is it? this device? Right. <laughs> who owns it? Like, you know, how is it set up? Does it have the good security controls set? You know, like, what's the, the security state of that entity? That's already super useful. Yeah. And that's kind of like the starting point. Like, you know, get to that point first. <laughs> then start modeling right yeah <clears throat> it's so easy to get sidetracked on like just trying to f go straight to finding like the malicious activity but if you have the device or the user that you just can't track down it's kind of going to be more work yeah absolutely uh, one thing that I, I like thinking about detection is the stuff that we're doing like with the purple team because we're doing a lot of manual stuff in the purple team, like the threat hunting and stuff like that. But you ultimately want to get to where that's automated, right? And that's mm -hmm. like a form of detection. And that's why we, we, talk, we spoke about this months ago, like the detection double down. Because that's so important. Because you, you're, we're at a point right now where prevention, if you put all of your eggs in one basket for prevention, like you're going to miss the boat. Because if somebody really wants to get into your network, they're going to get in. And mm -hmm. so you really want to have good detection capabilities so you can actually detect faster and and have a cheaper incident in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and in that situation, like, you need the information at your fingertips, right? right. You don't want to be going back to raw logs and trying to figure yeah. out. Yeah, like, mm -hmm. right. Like, it needs to be, like, available, right? Yes. <laughs> and so things like an asset inventory become invaluable at that point because you've already aggregated all the relevant information, right? It yep. might not be to the minute, right? Like, but you'll have at least that basic f understanding of, like, well, let's say that, like, five applications got compromised. Yep. You know, now you could say, well, what are what do they have in common? Yep. Like, do they exactly. depend on some library that might have a vulnerability that we don't right. know about, yep. right? So, you know, being able to answer those kinds of questions at the entity level, like, becomes super useful at that point. Yeah, because querying, like, each entity, like, on its own, be like, you know what, let's check, uh, let's check this source. Let's make sure there's nothing there. You, you can't right. do that manually. You have 10 APIs that you have right. to go to, and, like, you know, it's, like, too laborious, right? So, um, so now I'm really focused on that, like, inference step, the mm -hmm. situation and impact uh, assessments because right. that's like cognitively difficult right like and but at the same time we don't want to have to like have a human do that all the time right, right. Mm -hmm. for every signal that we're watching right so um the thing that i'm looking at now and this is uh, after going to the fusion conference where these people meet every year mm -hmm. um and seems like the the way that people are doing inference at that level is using belief functions right so this is like dempster schaefer theory and uh there's a particular one that um this one uh professor she seems to work in very relevant fields around threat analysis more in the physical world but like mm -hmm. uh, the kinds of inference that she would have to do is very similar to what we would be doing right um she's using this thing called the transferable belief model Right. So the idea is that you have uh, you have a kind of space in which you're trying to understand facts and draw inferences. And so you're trying to say, okay, you know, based on this evidence, that gives weight to the belief that A and B are true, mm -hmm. right? And then you might have some other piece of evidence that gives you evidence that B and D are true, right? right? And with some weight, right? 
And so then there are rules for combining that evidence and saying, well, what's the chance that B is true, right? Yeah. Now that I have these two independent pieces of evidence that both have a bearing on B, but like now I need to combine them, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a whole mathematical process that lets you do that in a disciplined way, right? right. And the TBM in particular, it's funny because it has these two different levels. Like one is called the creedal level from credo, like to believe, yeah, right? right? So it's, that's where you keep track of what you believe currently. And then there's the pygmistic level, which comes from <laughs> pygnus, which is to place a bet or mm, to bet in, right. Latin, in Latin. So the idea is like, you're just believing things for a while and then now you need to make a bet, right? right? When you make a bet, now you have to take all your beliefs and like yeah. calculate probabilities effectively, right? Now <laughs> you have to like take a position. Okay, I believe B is true with this probability. Right? If we could take <clears throat> just a step back because there are so many facets to detection. I think that a lot of people today, they have very minimal uh, person power in their companies. And so they're relying on a lot of applications and uh, solutions to do their detection. Mm -hmm. But at Netflix, we do things quite differently. So what is detection to you? And how should people sort of start looking at detection uh, in their own companies? Well, I think, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the approach that you're talking about, like yeah, no, where you just, yeah, you buy vendor products and, you know, different vendor products do really valuable things. Absolutely. And so you can have, uh, you know, IDSs at your gateways, you know, antivirus everywhere. Like, you know, there's, there's certainly like, um, a suite of approaches that are kind of the state of the practice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Netflix in particular has just made certain strategic bets around security sure. that were made before I joined. Right. <laughs> so it's not exactly that I was like, we must do things this way. Um, but it's just a really interesting environment because it's so heavily cloud focused. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so uh, there's not a ton of detection tools available is the thing, right? So it's not even just that we would, we're not buying the vendor products. It's like, okay, show right. me the vendor product that does this <laughs> and right. I'll be, you know, we'll take a look, right? And I'm actually, I'm doing an industry survey right <coughs> now and I'm, and I'm mapping it to this framework I was talking about so I can yeah. see like, well, what areas is it covering and like. Right. And um, the, uh, so, you know, but we have all this data infrastructure, right? All the streaming Kafka streams of, you know, log data and different kinds of metrics and whatever. And then we have all these like uh, data processing environments like Apache Flink or Spark or, mm -hmm. you know, and the company uses these very heavily for the, the service itself, right? Like to understand customer uh, activity and like, you know, make sure recommendations are tailored to each individual person. Right. They, you know, find things that they love and whatever. So, um, in security, and this was kind of similar to at Google, like we leverage that production infrastructure to do security. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, is a really powerful approach because you have all these teams supporting <laughs> all the infrastructure and you can be like, okay, I don't have to worry about whether Kafka is going to be up or not. Mm -hmm. like right. It's going to be up. Right? Right. Like, <laughs> so, you know, we can depend on that to stream even what we would consider large amounts of data. But then you go and look on the production side and you're like, yeah, we're just tiny. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, and then you can use like 
really kind of sophisticated streaming platforms to do the analysis like mm -hmm. at scale, right? Right. At our scale, yeah. right? Enterprise scale, yeah. <laughs> not you know production scale. Although, um, you know, we are monitoring the production environment. So, but it's a different thing to say, you know, I'm watching the machines that like offer the service and mm -hmm. and monitor like uh production traffic and the production traffic itself right right we can just kind of look at it and be like well yeah it looks like there's a lot going on right or mm -hmm. but then if it suddenly drops like is there is that problem just because of an availability thing or is it a security problem right right so we can kind of like also look at those types of production metrics and you know include them in how we're thinking about the security of the system so anyway so a lot of non-traditional approaches right. but part of it is just out of necessity because like nobody has built the system right. to yeah. monitor that type of network right like so do you think it's all the previous experience that you've had that prepared you most for dealing with like such a diverse data set cloud like machine to random endpoints do you think or was there something else that you think prepared you also <laughs> You've made the assumption that I'm prepared, <laughs> which is maybe <laughs> that's I'd be that's a bold assumption. Uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, well, yeah, I mean the years at Google definitely uh, was an education in just cloud environments and like the scale of things and also those types of data processing mm -hmm. environments and stuff. So at that level, like you know, it's not uh, at least it's not all new. Although, like, because it is the open source stuff, like, that's, uh, you know, it wasn't what I was used to. Right. But I can, you know, make analogies of, like, well, oh, that's, like, that system, or this is, like, that other system, right? Like, all the internal names. And so, you know, the analogies work pretty well because a lot of those open source things were based on stuff Google had done, right? Right. Internally. So, um Yes, yeah, so it was definitely an education. Whether you like to admit it or not, I think you're a, a thought leader in detection and, and risk for that matter. Uh, but for those people that are in those companies and they, they want to sort of take the next step beyond, you know, re uh, relying on applications and stuff like that, which is really important, especially if you need to scale for an enterprise. But for the people that are looking to do something extra, what, what advice would you have for them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, you know, many companies do have cloud environments, right. so it's not even that, um, this should all be completely brand new, but it is, uh, you know, and there are companies that are, um, trying to build like cloud monitoring stuff. Yep. So I don't want to say there's no vendor products. There definitely are, but, um, often they may not scale to the size that we need. Right. So, um, uh, but things that, I don't know, it's a, it's, it's hard to like answer that in general. Um, you know, I, I, I try to like, you know, it's hard to answer it without knowing like what a particular company situation is. Right. right. Like, as you know, like when, um, the stuff that we're working on, like we try to be focused on the particular risks of the company. Right. right? And that can depend very much on what business you're in, right? And yep. and also like where, what are kind of the strategic assets for the company? Right. So some and crown jewels analysis, like what are the things you need to protect? Exactly. Yeah. And then, 
from there you can say, okay, well, these are the crown jewels and what are the threats to those, right? What right. are the loss scenarios yeah. that could occur so that this would either, you know, if it's uh, sensitive information that it would become public or mm -hmm. that it could become stolen by L some group. Little threat intel? Yeah, exactly. There, there you go. go. <laughs> intel based, like who who want, who want would want the information, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but then also the availability of it, right? If we suddenly lost access to this data, like what would happen to the company and mm -hmm. how damaging would that be, right? Right. So we've been working on that, like the FAIR approach, yep. uh, the FAIR framework for analyzing risk, which is, uh, I think, really interesting and well-developed. It is interesting. Um, it's There's an interesting point, though. I recently read this article, and I, I this is not a well-developed thought but okay. like why not share it here yeah let's do the it world. Yeah. yeah so uh there's this new kind of economics that's being developed because as you know like in the fair methodology what you do is you estimate the frequency of something happening yep. and then the loss the range of losses that could the occur, magnitude yep. right and or impacts i guess and then you can simulate and say like okay for 2020 or whatever, like what are all of the possible ways this could play out, right. right? So you do a Monte Carlo simulation where you say, did this loss occur? Did it occur more than once? It could actually occur multiple times if it's a, particularly if it's a high problem of high frequency, right? Right. <clears throat> and so how many times did this loss occur? Zero or more. And then for each loss that occurred, what was the actual amount? Like you just draw from a random distribution of that range that you said yep like what are the range of losses that could occur and a lot of times they use a log normal distribution because like a at the high end you could have like blowout losses like okay we lost this sensitive data and we got sued and it was the new york times right. and like mm -hmm. you know like all these things <laughs> happen and it's like wow that was a lot bigger than we thought so that's why you use like a log normal with the long tail so you draw from that distribution what was the actual loss in that case, right? And then you do that for all your losses, and then you simulate many, many possible years. Yeah. Right? So here's one version of 2020. Here's another version of 2020. Here's right. another version of 2020. Many, 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 many times, and then you kind of average it all together, and that gives you a picture of, like, the range of losses that could occur. It's uh, Doctor Strange in Infinity War, where he's sitting there and he's like, 14, 14 million. 14 million. <laughs> in five. Which ones did we have no losses? Just one. Right. You know? Yeah. So, exactly. Exactly. So, the, um, so this new economics that's being developed, actually, it's, so it's a really interesting concept. It's called ergodicity economics. So, and this is that that way of thinking about like many many possible 2020s. That's very standard in economics. That's right. a that's what you call like an ensemble average, and you do you calculate an expectation value. This is what we expect to lose. But you know when you think about that for a moment, what does that really mean? Like you're not like either you lost or you didn't. Right. Right. So let's say that you had a 10% chance of losing a million dollars. You can say the expectation of that is 100,000. Right. But really, like either you lost it or you didn't. Right. That's right? a good point. You either lost zero or a million. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And it's just that, you know, in your simulation of many years, like in 10% of them, you lost a million and in 90% you lost nothing. Right. Right. 
Now, and this is, so it's really interesting to think about what that means. So number one, it means that, like, let's say you lived the one of the, the year that you actually lived was one of those ones in which you lost nothing. Right. So then you might be like, well, maybe the risk isn't as big as we thought. Right. Like, why should we worry so much? Right. Yeah. Like, maybe we just like overestimated that. And so right. Okay. Yeah. And then you might live another year in which you lost nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. But when that year comes, <laughs> you know, and yeah. you actually don't know whether 10% is too low or too high. Like the more years you live without losing, you know, right. the more confidence you would have that you right. didn't uh, underestimate the risk. But, but still, like in each year, you either lose it or you don't, right? Correct. So this idea of an of a expectation value only really is valid in systems where you have a quality called ergodicity where you actually explore all of the possibilities, mm -hmm. right? So imagine like a loss that occurs a hundred times a year. Right. Okay, you're gonna have losses, right? Like either you uh, estimated the frequency wrong or you're gonna be having losses all the time, mm -hmm. in which case your numbers are gonna work out. Like right. your expectation value will actually be what you lost <laughs> because yeah, you're right. constantly losing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but if it's one of these ones where like maybe once every 10 years, maybe once every hundred years, like, you know, again, like each year, either you did lose it or you didn't. Right. right. And so the ergodicity assumption is what you use to say, well, let's estimate our risk this way. Mm -hmm. But that's not the reality of the way you live risk. You live right. risk one year at a time yep. and then it either happens or it doesn't. Right. And so, uh, this alternative formulation of economics is more about like, okay, what if we draw this out in time, mm -hmm. right? Not saying a million possible 2020s, but like now that we have this risk, let's like draw it out a hundred years from now. Right. Okay. Was it a good choice? Like, do we need to mitigate this risk before we mitigate the one that happens a hundred times a year? Right. Right. Because you know, either because like if that loss happened, it would truly like destroy your company, right? Mm -hmm. And you just think like, okay, if we draw this out to a hundred years, like we're not making enough profits to make up for that loss, right? right? Or whatever. So then at that point you might think like, well, we should focus more on that because yeah, this other loss is happening a hundred times a year, but we've already kind of accounted for it. Like right. maybe we could reduce it but it's not going to destroy the company, right? Obviously, because it's happening all the time. <laughs> Ron, you, you're in a lot of client environments. Ha are you seeing more customers tying risks to cybersecurity? Do you think there's a bit of a delta there still to, to grow in a lot of the spaces you're seeing? From, uh, from my perspective, I think that there's definitely a lot of room to grow, but the conversations are now being started. Right. A lot of uh, measurement is being performed to see the time that it takes. What's the cost of that time? You know, right. What are the man hours along with potential losses in other areas? So I'm yep. starting to see that area explored a bit, yeah. but a lot of room to grow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What uh? What about you? From your perspective, you just uh, shifted in Netflix, but right. when you were still consulting, uh, doing the threat intel work. Yeah, I mean, but that was probably a year and a half ago. I think it was a l a lot less at that point. But now that being in Netflix land, it seems like all we do is talk about risks. So. Right. Uh, it's kind of hard to compare because it seems like everybody's talking about it now. Everybody's looking for training and risk. People are uh, building these models in order to sort of estimate what potential impacts would be. Uh, but 
you know, years ago, it, it seemed like it really wasn't talked about as much, even though there were breaches kind of going on. Mm -hmm. There was not a lot of, of action. And I think it's because you have two seemingly separate disciplines. You have people that do risk analysis and you have people to do cybersecurity. Now you're starting to see a blend of both. Yep. That's uh, very true. Uh, I, I'm really excited to see what is shaped from this, you know, transition, more uh, assessing of risk, more assessing of just your, even your incident response plan and gathering data and storing it in the right place. We're definitely moving towards that direction. I'm seeing a lot of like custom built things, especially in uh, organization environments, custom built uh, sims, custom built right. data warehouses, custom built automation engines, which yeah. are actually pretty impressive. So. Yeah. I think that uh, security practitioners are widening, widening their game. Yeah. Uh, you had a great opportunity where you had to learn C++ prob <laughs> probably overnight. Yeah, right. <laughs> it wasn't overnight. <laughs> so given the engineers like the ability to, uh, sorry, the cybersecurity practitioners, the ability to engineer and uh, create their own applications, I think is taking uh, the opportunity and widening it quite a bit. Outstanding. Yeah. And then from your perspective, Marcus, when you sort of tie detection to risks, there, there's a beautiful thing that kind of happens because it, <laughs> it gives priority to the detection that you're building. Mm -hmm. What are some best practices that you kind of abide by in order to, to match those two? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, uh, we're trying to stay kind of in strict risk order, but right. the reality is there's always some other considerations going on. Right. So, for example, there may be a part of the company that it's really strategically important to have a good relations with, yep. right? And so you might go ahead and engage in some projects with them just to keep that conversation going, right? right? And because you know, like, in future, like, there's got to be more and more collaboration, so you don't want to, like, just be like, we'll get to you yeah, later, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, that's not a good... Call me in a year. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so... So you try, you kind of like try to slice your time appropriately so that you keep that, you know, building that relationship and, mm. and stuff. But, um, you know, the things that uh, you can do when you have a like quantified risk is to be able to say, uh, this project is going to mitigate this many dollars of risk per year, right? right? Because it's going to, uh, and, and I kind of think of it this way that, you know, in the FAIR framework, you have the you know, the frequency, which is related to, like, you know, the number of times attackers are trying to exploit something and the chance that they would succeed, that vulnerability, right? So that vulnerability number you can adjust by uh, adding controls, right? right. And, like, and making it harder to break in. Uh, detection works more on the impact side. Uh, well, it could, it could affect, uh, like, catching it before it gets to the loss right so there is like the possibility that you would detect the attacker before the loss occurs right so that's that's definitely good but then also uh reducing the impact so if the loss is occurring and but it takes some time to unfold right you know detection can also help like lower the impact level right, right. and so that's where for example like encryption at risk can help, right? Because mm -hmm. if you have some sensitive data and it's encrypted at rest, if the attacker breaks in, they're not going to just be like, boom, I got it, mm -hmm. I'm gone, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they might have to like 
uh, latch on to some system that processes that data right. and like get it as it's being processed, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you have a little bit of time, <laughs> not a yeah. lot of time, but like, you know, it helps drag out that time horizon so that detection can maybe, you know, you'd catch the person before they get too far, right? Right. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it, it just guides your thinking about yep. like where to like apply your resources to be the most effective. And so, um, you know, and it helps you communicate it to the parts of the company that aren't really security focused, right? Mm -hmm. You can, uh, if you can put things in dollar terms, like that's just a much easier conversation than yeah, saying, yes. I'm going to turn this red thing <laughs> into a yellow thing. Like, and then nice. they're, like, they're like, it looks. It's yeah. yellow. That means it's better, right? It's like they can kind of. Maybe one day it'll be green. Blur their eyes <laughs> and be like, how much green is on there? Yeah. You know, it's oh, like. There's a lot of green there. It looks good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But maybe 10 of them are like not very important. And right. the one red one is one like really super like, duper yeah, important. Multi million dollar loss. <laughs> like, okay, if you make it really big, then maybe, you know, if you can scale it by the amount of. If I squint hard then, enough, I don't even see the red. <laughs> exactly. We're all green. It's good. To, to uh, change gears a little bit, when we first started talking about you being on the show, uh, you came up with a concept that I think is huge, and we've touched on it quite a bit uh, on the show, but it's psychology and high-performance environments. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of your uh, initial thoughts? And, and we'll kind of go around the room and, and talk about, because I have some thoughts. I know Ron has some <laughs> thoughts. But you've been in a lot of environments where you've had to perform. I guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a <laughs> little so, bit. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's, uh, you know, I should say at the outset, I don't have any credentials or training. Right, yeah, we're uh, not doctors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, so I can speak from personal experience and just kind of what I've observed and some reading uh, around this issue because, like, it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of, you know, was joking before, like, well, I'm not sure I'm prepared, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is that, like, you know, you always doubt yourself, right? No matter what, but, and, and it's good to have some amount of doubt and say like, well, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about here, right? Like, because you want to review and like, you know, make sure everybody's input, uh, you're taking everybody's input, right? Like, yeah, not good to be arrogant or like, you know, um, but the fact is like, you know, uh, all of us, you know, are in environments where like, you wouldn't be there if you didn't have the basic skills, right? Like if you if you weren't already performing at a high level. Right. And so any residual doubt is really like you might be hurting yourself, right? By just kind of focusing on like, well, wow, that didn't go as well as I thought it was gonna go in that imagined scenario of like how great it was gonna be, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yep. you know, and the fact is like, we're all working on hard problems that like really in many cases nobody knows how to solve and so it's okay that like you couldn't figure it out right away or that it's taking a long time or you know you know i think people you generally kind of actually know like am i applying myself to this like to the level that i need to be mm -hmm. and you know am i doing like applying all the knowledge that i have or am i learning the things i need to be learning right and like just knowing that like you can kind of be a little bit easier on yourself about like how long it's taking or Definitely. whether you were able to figure it out or not right and and it's like that um you know so i've been reading a lot around you know you guys have talked about imposter syndrome a couple of times on yep. the show that's you know in 
uh, in the tech industry, it's kind of like this running joke, right? It's kind of like, well, I understand you have imposter syndrome. You're so awesome, and yet you keep doubting yourself. Like, mm -hmm. I don't understand why you do that. But you have to know that, like, in my case, I'm just incompetent. Like, right, right, like, yeah. You guys are awesome, but I'm the one who doesn't know what right. he's talking about. Yeah. And so, it's, you know, you, and then every, you know, you go around mm -hmm. the table and everyone says the same thing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And so it, you know, so I've been trying to understand more about, like, why is that? Like, why does a high performing person or a high performing, you know, people in high performing teams, like, why do they doubt themselves so much? And um, so lately I've been reading this book uh, called Culture of Shame. Right. Andrew Morrison. So he's, uh, Andrew, yeah, Andrew Morrison. Um, anyway, he is a psychiatrist who like started focusing on issues of shame and where they come from and how you can kind of overcome these feelings, right? And, and it seems to be like, it's related to a lot of different things, a lot of different like difficulties people have, but this thing of imposter syndrome and like doubting yourself and like being really hard on yourself when you fail at something that is related to these feelings of shame and and some and so part of like where that comes from it can come from childhood like you know that you don't get uh as much acceptance as you needed kind of right like that people either just didn't have enough time for you or attention, right? That you felt like isolated or didn't get the, you know, uh, sort of emotional approval that you needed, right. like to grow and feel good about yourself yep. as a child, right? Uh, or it can be that they actually like criticized you and were like, you know, would say you didn't live up to some standard that they had or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. They tried to make you feel bad. So whatever it is, like that can kind of build up over time. You internalize that critic, right? Yeah. And you start to like, you know, when you do something good, you're like, it's just like, well, yeah, you yeah, know, right. That's just normal, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you do something bad, you're like, oh, how could I have done something so stupid? And yeah. like, and you just ruminate over it, and you're like, right. and you focus on those and you things where you felt feel like you fell short, right? right? And that, you, I mean, obviously that's a very unbalanced pattern. You know, you're not saying like, well, but there are those five things that I did well and like right. people were praising me mm -hmm. for and like, you know, and so, so anyway, a lot of what he talks about in terms of like getting beyond those feelings is to, is to internalize the acceptance that you're getting from mm -hmm. other people, right? right? If you're like being such a harsh critic on yourself and you can't, give yourself that approval then listen to what people are telling you right when they say like wow that's really amazing work yep. right don't just be like no no it's not as good as i wanted it to be right <laughs> right like i mean okay fine like it's not as good as you wanted it to be but listen to what they're saying right they're saying it's good work yeah. like internalize it you know start to like silence that internal critic mm -hmm. and get them to a more realistic appraisal of what you can actually do right right and it's uh it's not about uh you know you also talked about the dunning-kruger effect right but uh, i mean the thing yeah. is that like you you're not going to make that transition right, right. Like from <laughs> like oh my god i'm so bad i don't know what i'm doing here why is everyone else better than me right. to 
I can do no wrong. I can do everything. Like, yeah, what? I can do anything. <laughs> it's like stumbling <laughs> through as you know an uninformed person and doing everything wrong, right? Like I, I definitely look at it uh, in the spectrum, you know, from imposter syndrome to the Dunning Kruger effect, which we learned from a pos, uh, past guest. Um, but I think smack dab in the middle, and we're going to actually talk about this at great length on Thursday, is flow, uh, the ability to enter a, a flow state, which I think is like smack dab in the middle because. You have on the axis of uh, difficulty and your ability to do something, it's like where it's like that perfect nexus mm -hmm. where you're so focused on what you're doing and everything is just coming together perfectly because you have the requisite experience, you have the ability to think, and it's just like smooth sailing. And I love being able to enter uh, a flow state, uh, but I think the more people enter flow states at their given work, they start to feel that. I, I do know what I'm doing, <laughs> right? So uh, do you have any thoughts on, on flow state? How do you get into a flow state if, if you can sort of force it? Um, and what are some things that you do when you're in a flow state? So that's a really good question, for one. Uh, going back to, like, books and psychology a bit, uh, I, I was kind of transformed after reading The Four Agreements. And one of the agreements that you have to make with yourself if you want to enter in a flow state more frequently, I think, is uh, knowing that you're always going to do your best. If you're always doing your best, then even when you have those times where you're not as successful, right. it's all right. You can, you can assess and be like, all right, was I doing my best here? If I was, then okay, great. If I wasn't, then you know what went wrong. It could be a shorter conversation with the big judge. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I think my biggest advice would be, and my advice myself is always just to continue to do, to do your best. And then when you're when you're doing your best and you're you know presenting yourself at the best at work or whatever activity you're doing, then I think it's a lot easier to reach that state of uh, control versus uh, difficulty. Right. Uh, one thing that I, I'd like to put out to everybody, and I don't know the uh, domain off the top of my head, so we'll add it in the show notes, but it's uh, the Flow Genome Project. And you take, it's like 10 questions, you go and you an, uh, answer them, and it shows you your preferred environment for being in flow. Really? Yeah, so I took it this past week, and, and I should make everybody uh, take it before the, the sync on Thursday. Oh, yeah. uh, but. I already have like videos and articles, so I don't want to <laughs> inundate everybody with stuff to do. But um, for me, it's uh, serenity. I like being in a place where I'm not distracted. I don't feed off of like the hustle and bustle around me. I, I like to be sort of serene and focused. So like when we do our coffee shop time, I put my headphones on, I get on the keyboard and I just flow. Uh, but some people, they like being in chaotic environments, like maybe they're on the floor at, at Wall Street and they're like looking at the numbers and the noise and they're able to like pull things together mm -hmm. like, a, like a conductor. But um, yeah, that's one thing that I, I'd put out there for, for our listeners and our watchers. Uh, check, out, check it out, uh, Flow Genome Project. Just Google that. I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, but for, what about for you? Do, you? do you find that you enter flow states often and, and what are the best environments for you to enter that? Uh, I would say, I wouldn't say often. I mean, it's great when it happens. I mean, right. uh, and I would say like one of the key things, at least for me, and I, I, I would suspect most other people, like is that it takes some time to enter a flow state. Mm -hmm. And so like it's really important to have like work periods that are uninterrupted. Right. At least that's for me, I guess, that, that like um, 
you know, because like I'll that'll happen to me, like for example, if I'm uh, coding sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Or if I'm writing some document that's about like sort of the philosophy of what right. I'm trying to do or whatever, right? Like, and so that requires some headspace, right? It can't you can't be having constant interruptions, and then uh, still be able to do that, right? So yeah. like. Um, I do often like wear headphones at work and listen to music mm -hmm. and music. Like I'm kind of like on the side of like, I need a little bit of like hubbub. Yeah. So like, you know, either sometimes loud music you probably hear it. When <laughs> oh <I> yeah. <laughs> Especially when you <laughs> take it off, you got your, your hacker hoodie on like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What'd you say, Chris? <laughs> uh, and then, uh, like a coffee shop actually, it's perfect for me. Cause like that, like background noise of blah, 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 everybody's talking like that. I can just like disappear into that and then like, yeah. do. And do maybe work. I don't need perfect serenity. Cause like I, I would, if I was like locked in a barren room, like with a laptop, there's no way I'd enter flow. Mm, I think yeah. I need a, a little bit of background noise. Like kind of like what you're saying. All right. Yeah. yeah. Definitely yeah, need some life in the background. A little bit of life, <laughs> uh, maybe a, a different environment because I, I don't think I've ever been in a flow state working from bed, like sitting <laughs> on a laptop. Like I, I don't, yeah. I, I th that <laughs> that's does not called, work. That, that flow state's called sleep. Yeah. That's where I know <laughs> <laughs> like I was working and then. Uh, <laughs> what about from a, a physical perspective? Because I've, my first uh, entrance into flow state before I even knew what flow state was, was in wrestling for me because I would get to a point where my body would react and like, unconsciously like if someone's like throwing me i i remember like i'm like am i a, a genius because this guy was throwing <laughs> me through the air and in the middle of the air i was able to change the trajectory and throw him midair onto his back oh, and wow. so stuff like that like just completely unconscious uh that's why i, I really got in a flow state and it extended into jujitsu things like that i'm like whoa that was pretty cool what about you guys have you done anything physical and entered a flow state I I used to do quite a bit of martial arts, mm -hmm. uh, different ones. Like, I moved or well, yeah. So I mean, I've lived in a lot of different places, so I didn't necessarily always stick with it for a really long time. Like, I'd be in a school somewhere for a couple of years, and then I'd move somewhere else and right. study a completely different art or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, so like, I've done like Aikido, Hapkido, Taekwondo, yeah, um, Judo when I was really young. Um, Love Judo. Yeah, so it was, yeah, and actually that was, I mean, I, I I need to try to go back and find who the teacher was because that was when I was like five years old and living in Okinawa. And I'm pretty sure the guy who was the teacher was some super high level oh, wow. judo master. Yeah, because yeah. like he was, he was really, really good. Um, as a kid, like I was struggling with it. Like, yeah, I didn't want to throw anyone. Like I was like. I was like, I'm gonna hurt somebody. How do I lay them down as soft as possible? Do this. Yeah. You know, now. I, 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 oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I throw with abandon, <laughs> reckless abandon. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you. I think yeah, with physical stuff. Uh, actually, it's funny because like I, uh, when I was in junior college, I was doing a lot of playing uh, pool, like yeah. billiards, right? Oh yeah. And I got into flow states there sometimes. Yeah. Because you know where you just could do no wrong. Right. Boom. Boom 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 one after yeah. another right and it's like it's a weird feeling and i was like wow what was that like i just like ran the table without any effort right, right. and you're just like wow that's crazy like 
And so, you know, I've experienced that in other areas. Like, I think there were times in martial arts when I was that good, but like, right. um, you know, and so it's always really exciting when it happens and it takes a while to get there and you can never, I don't think you can force it. Right. right. Yeah. Like, it's I just, don't think it'll can. happen or not happen. Like, <laughs> Yeah, definitely. For, for me, uh, I, I would say it's just going to the gym. Uh, I've been kind of religious for quite some time going to the we gym. We can't tell, obviously. <laughs> 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 oh, really? <laughs> you work out? <laughs> and uh, my biggest weakness is, like, doing ab exercises. So sometimes mm. when I'm, like, reaching a new point of, like, doing different ab exercises, I'm like, wow, I can't believe, like, I got here in the first place or <laughs> it's already over. Like, I was kind of just, just doing it, just, like, letting – my my body do what it knows best right mm -hmm. and what about like when you do things like yoga do you ever do like uh not off the laptop not with an instructor just do your own yoga and you get into a flow state as well or uh with the yoga i'm not quite there yet okay yeah with going to the gym i don't i don't need to follow some program i kind of do it for like my own peace like it's a right. peace of mind that i get now and also creative like it's my creative genius uh right. going to the gym like yeah. all right what can i do with this basic workout and still learn something new yeah do you uh direct yourself within the gym or is it sort of like just let the muscles guide you <laughs> <laughs> i need to press and you just go press for a little bit i i think it's only like that <laughs> when i'm like traveling for work okay if i'm traveling for work then th the gym's always going to be different so i'm like yeah. all right this is like where I let my muscles guide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, another time that I, I get into a flow state, and this is actually like almost like a practice flow state, is uh, when I dance. So I danced for a long, long time, and I, I had a great instructor. Uh, his name's Slick Dog. Uh, yes, that's what everybody <laughs> calls him. Uh, he would preach that when you're practicing, you would actually just do the mechanics of it. So. Instead of like going and dancing to music, you would just do this, like little subtle things, or you like practice your wave and stuff like that for hours. Wow. But when you go to perform, you let all of that muscle memory take over and you just focus on the music. And that's when you see that mm. spectacular musicality, like the, the Les Twins, Les you know, twins. Yeah. yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> that's where you see like mastery at its best. But for me, because you can't think, all right, I'm going to do this one and I'm going to do this one because you're, you're already going to be missing the beat. Mm. So that's a, a flow state that I've actually practiced getting into. And when I hit it, it feels great. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Have you ever seen, uh, does he dance in the office? He's only like given us a few little samples. <laughs> and it's always like magical because like, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, when, when you mentioned Lay Twins, I actually saw them. At, they were in San Francisco at the uh, SF Jazz Center. They mm -hmm. did a master class there. Yeah. Oh. I was not really supposed to be in a master class, but you were there. Yeah. Well, I was just in the audience like, you know, it was, it was actually like a performance. When space. was this? Uh, this was maybe two years ago. Oh, OK. I was about like to say if it was while I was here, I was about to be mad. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Um, but the interesting thing was like. They spent a lot of time talking, and I was, we were kind of like, come on, man. Like, right. <laughs> and and uh, it was what was really cool was there were a lot of ballet dancers there to, like, learn. And so, like, one lady came up, and she was an amazing ballet dancer, and they did a little dance together. That was, like, one of the most magical things wow. I've ever seen. Like, 
the two of them dancing together. I was like, you know, you just give little snippets. I'd be like, oh, yeah, more, I'm more. Yeah. Like, you know, it's so amazing. I'm, I'm so envious of those those guys and, and the people that actually just do dance full time. Because there are still friends that I have that all they do is dance. And just their ability at this point in time, I'm just like, oh, my gosh. I, I don't even want to dance in front of them. I look like the old guy that used to have it back in the 70s, you know. But... <laughs> Oh my goodness, it's, it's such a beautiful thing to see masters like in their work. I like seeing uh, people enter flow states. And, and one thing that I'm going to do before we have our thing on Thursday is I want to see examples of video of people that, that enter flow states. Like sometimes I think you see it in like chef's table when you see wow. like the yes. chefs actually doing their, their work. And mm. I, I can tell that there's like this effortless like focus that they put into their food. Like, Hero dreams of sushi, like the way he would like present, uh, you know, a dish and stuff like that. So, oh my gosh, I, I love flow, love flow. <laughs> if you can't tell, <laughs> number one fan right here. Number one fan, absolutely. Flow fan number one. They need a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> For what? Yeah. So, what about Dunning Kruger? Have you guys actually like interfaced with people that? you would assume have sort of a Dunning-Kruger effect? <laughs> Obviously, you don't have to go into not naming names, but have you seen those people that feel like they're invincible, but they're actually lacking in a lot of areas? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I know I have personally, and- Like you have it? Like you are Dunning-Kruger? <laughs> <laughs> By <Super> definition, <laughs> he could not say that he has Dunning-Kruger. Like, <laughs> right. Once you say it, you no longer you have no it. You no longer have it, right. <laughs> <laughs> like your release, yeah. Uh, no, I, for for me, uh, I I think who doesn't run into the imposter syndrome in tech? Um, so yep. I I think I'm definitely more on that side of the fence than yep. thinking that I have magical powers. But uh, yeah, I, I've I've definitely worked with uh, individuals who have taken on too much work. Like, right. hey, we can do all of these amazing things in a single week. Let's give it a shot. Right. I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> working in those types of environments and organizations, I, I have been there before. Yeah. I'm not sure if uh, that answers the question. or No, yeah, yeah. no, definitely, because I, I think, but then where's that balance between pushing yourself and, and going into a, uh, getting out of your comfort zone and saying that I can do anything? You right. know, like, where is that balance? Well, I think particularly, like, with a team leader, it really depends, like, what happens at the end of that period, right? When a lot of the things didn't materialize mm -hmm. and it was just like there was no way it was going to happen to begin with but you know they were expecting it like yeah let's do this you know and then the question is now do they punish their people and say like you know you guys aren't working hard enough or is it just like hey i was setting ambitious goals because i wanted to see how far we could get like good work guys right like that's mm -hmm. a different a very different outcome right and it has a lot to do then with like do those people go home thinking, oh, man, I failed and I'm terrible? Or do they think, wow, that was cool, like, to set a really ambitious goal and see how far we could get towards it. And, like, we probably did more than we would have if we hadn't set that goal, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. And so, like, that can that can be a cool thing as long as it's not too gimmicky, right? Like, if you do that every week, then it's just like, well, okay, you know, here yep. we go again, right? But if it's, you know, every once in a while maybe there's some – you're trying to hit some really interesting goal, like let's see if we can pull it off this week, right? Like, and uh, you know, then it can be a motivator, you know. Very but. true. 
So for our listeners out there, uh, obviously we work at Netflix, but I encourage people to go out there and read our culture memo because I think it has a lot of interesting things. And one of the things that stood out to me from the culture memo when I was uh, you know, doing my interview process and things like that was that we are not a family. We are like an Olympic team. <laughs> and the feeling of being on an Olympic team is when you think, you know, that is like the, the, the epitome of what someone's doing in their field. Do you feel like you're on an Olympic team, like from a detection standpoint? Oh, I mean, it's definitely, uh, you know, the security team there is just a very high-performing team. It's Absolutely. It's a little intimidating, right? I have to say. Uh, do I intimidate you? Do I make you feel? Uh, of you course. Know? Oh, nice. <laughs> that was my goal. I want to make people as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really cool to be able to work with people like Scott Barron's yes. who was on your show. Right. And like, you know, just, I mean, he's just amazing. Like, so this purple team that we're doing right now, you right. know, the phrase that I came up with in the meeting I'm like this is maximally informative yes <laughs> because like the thing he came up with I was like yeah we didn't we didn't build that right, right? like so I mean that's um, why we're doing it though right yeah we're it's trying perfect to, trying to expose those, those he's things. putting himself in the mind of the attacker exactly and then like this is how I would do it and then I'm like oh yeah so I, I already feel like we're one. we're at a win so anything oh, else yeah. in addition is it's just icing on the cake no, it's totally, that is totally a win. So, like, you know, I could have gone home and cried and been like, <laughs> you know, that, you know, what a failure I am. But, uh, and on some level, I, we did fail to, like, think of, like, what he came up with. But at the same time, like, it was very informative. And right. so that purple team at that point becomes super productive, right? Right. It's like, yeah, well, you need to cover this yes. hole, right? Like, otherwise, that's what attackers will do, right? Right. And so it was a uh, it was very useful exercise at that point. And we're benefiting from Scott's experience and mindset, right? Right. Um, so yeah, it was that's what, that was really cool. Here, here's my question to to both of you guys. So being at the top of your game in something and working with a high performance team, and then let's say you're on the Olympic team this year. And then the next Olympics, you're not. You're, you know, you're just doing national tournaments. You're doing other things. How do you, how do, how does someone handle being at the top of their game and then not being at the top of the game? How do you go from being the heavyweight champion of the world to just being a contender again? What are some tips that you guys would have for them? Is it something that you guys think about? First of all, you never stop being the heavyweight champion. <laughs> You're always champ. <laughs> you know, I saw a headline with like Muhammad Ali, former heavyweight champion. I'm like, no, right? He's the champ yeah. forever, right? Champ like, forever. You don't stop. You know. Yeah. Because like you know, you're only that that's something that type of thing you only achieve once, right? Right. Like you don't go back the next year and win the title again. Okay, you can hold on to it for a while. Yeah, you like, can. And then I guess maybe. Has there been a case where somebody lost it and then came back and won it again? Oh, was yeah, it? absolutely. Mm-hmm. Was well, let's, oh, forgetting his name. Anyway, the point is, oh, uh, by the way, I should say, <laughs> like when you were talking about high performance or Olympic teams, uh, you know, I remembered that, like, I, I don't watch sports. Right. Like, I actually do watch the Olympics, but, like, I generally am not, like, into sports at all, but I right. love sports movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way. <laughs> I love the narrative. Right. I love yes. the I love the nerve, and that that's part of the reason why I can watch UFC is because I've been watching it so long. I understand 
the drama behind the scenes because I would watch the interviews and the people, the smack talk, and I know about their their family life and stuff like that. So it's interesting to me. But beyond that, like just watching people perform, I can appreciate it, but I don't get as emotionally invested mm-hmm. unless I, I understand the narrative. Like a sports movie, I right. love sports movies. I love sports documentaries. It's like fascinating. I, I need to watch the. Um, the car racing one that we have on the service. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the documentary one, right? Yeah, the, the documentary F1, one, yeah. Ooh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I need to check that out because uh, it's actually um, one of my friends, uh, John Bell, he says like one of his favorite movies, and so I'm like, oh, I got to watch that. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah, but it made me think of, uh, um, oh, shoot, what was it? It was the movie about the uh, 1980 like hockey team, Olympic hockey team. Miracle. Miracle, exactly, yeah. that's it. Kurt Russell, I think, was the coach, right? And then that whole scene where he's, like, bringing the team together, right? Yeah. Like, they're doing wind sprints up and down the thing, up and down the court, and he's like, what team, you know, who are you and what team are you on? And then they'd be like, oh, I'm so-and-so from University of Nebraska. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then eventually, you know, they're just all vomiting. (laughs) And then eventually (laughs) they're like, I'm on Team USA. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it was just like – you know, I feel like, you know, any high-performing team, you have to get to that point, right? Absolutely. So I can come and I can say, like, I worked at Google, and, like, I could walk around, I was the Google guy, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> like, tons of other people were, too. But the point is, like, you know, at some po- what point do you stop being the person who worked at Google, yeah. and you start being the person who works at Netflix, right? Like Netflix detection and response. <laughs> <laughs> right, but it's... Like- now you got it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and uh, right now, I mean, our, our detection and response team, I think we're very close-knit. Very group. close. And so I think that's a really cool feeling. And then Shannon and I are like like this, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. And I think that started very quickly. And so that was really, um, I think, a positive thing because in the end, like, you you have to, like, rely on each other a lot. And right. And, uh, you know, you learn each other's, like, strengths and where you might need to help out a little bit. And, like, you know, as a team, you get, like, more effective than you would be individually. Right. Right. So, like, Shannon has all this great background with machine learning and can apply that to these problems. And I can – and she's even worked in security for so long. So, like, she actually doesn't need me. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, you know, I can – sometimes like maybe help with coding right like Mm -hmm. you know the because i at google they just beat it into me right (laughs) right like there's coding standards that you have to meet otherwise your code just doesn't go in right Mm -hmm. like you're not allowed to commit it right so and so i can kind of help uh you know uh establish those kinds of standards within our team and say like well why don't you do it this way or like redesign the class you know and so it becomes a thing where we benefit from each other's skills, right? And we're all, like, pulling in the same direction. And then in the end, it ends up, you know, that's where you get the high performance, right? Right. And it's a it's a supportive thing, right? Yeah. Knowing that everyone here is suffering from imposter syndrome. Like, you never right. want to play into that dynamic mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. well, that didn't, you know, that wasn't as good as I expected, you know? Right. It's like... You know, that's not helping anyone, right? So you celebrate the wins. You make sure people really understand when they did something really well. Right, 
mm-hmm. right? Because that they may not realize it themselves mm-hmm. or like internalize it, right? So you really pointed out that was amazing, right? Yep. Yeah. And here's why, and like, and then that reinforces it, right? And then mm-hmm. they can perform even better in the future, right? Right. I I feel like uh, us three, um, especially me. No, I'm just kidding. Not me. Uh, <laughs> we are all at the uh, Olympic team level right maybe there, there's some room to grow i'm pretty new to the the olympics i'm a, i'm a fresh <laughs> fresh greenhorn amateur. yeah i'm pretty amateur but i made it i'm here i'm hey. a, I'm, a, I'm an olympian proud to say i think you're an olympian you're definitely an olympian uh what about some advice for people that are looking to get on an olympic team those people that are working at you know you know a, a respectable job but they want to go to a team that's super high performance how how what do they need to be thinking about and how do they get to those teams wow yeah so i actually talked about this a bit ago for like my search for an olympic team and i had some very specific uh, requirements for like what olympic team meant to me right so i did some research i think knowing having a platform to do research on like what does an Olympic team mean to you? Like what kind of skills are you looking to acquire or what kind of skills do you want your colleagues to acquire? Uh, You have to do like research. So I think LinkedIn is a great place. You can learn about a specific team and also who's leading the team and who's on the team and kind of understand some skill sets. Uh, But for me, my my search was on Crunchbase. I knew that there was a specific unicorn of a company that would be out there I just didn't know where they existed yet. Right. So I think uh, getting on some platforms where you could do some searching, understanding what are, you know, what is a dream job to you? What is a dream team? What is it made of? Uh, mm-hmm. Having like that kind of fleshed out in your mind and also having a platform to search, I think can go quite a long way. Right. I want to twist the question a little bit because uh, the thing is like you can build a high performing team almost anywhere. Right. Very like true. it's, you know, there can be some organizations that are so like corrosive that like it's not possible. Right. Sure. That, that that can happen. But let's say you're just your average company where there's some good things or some bad things. Right. Yep. Yeah. Maybe there's weird static that comes from outside your team. Right. The manager can do a lot to like insulate, you know, and try to catch some of that stuff and like keep it away from the team members so they don't have to like deal with it. But um if you have a team where like everyone's kind of supportive of that, of like we want to be great, right? right? Then it's possible to build it, even if other teams are not high performing, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's all around like, uh, I mean, one of the big things that uh, out of the research is that is psychological safety, mm-hmm. right? It's that like people feel comfortable with being vulnerable in that team and like exposing what they don't know what they need help with you know what things they think are going to fail and like you know being open about it right because they're not no one's going to turn to them you're not you know what are you doing here right like it's a thing where like everyone's like oh yeah that's a really good that's a good point we didn't think about that possible like problem let's work it out right and so that kind of like a high performing team i th- i think you can build it in most organizations right it does mm. require like a group of people who are mutually supportive right. and like create that environment of like mutual support but um 
you know, it doesn't require that the whole company be high-performing right. necessarily, right? And so you've, you know, you've probably seen it in places, you know, maybe you worked somewhere where you're like, the organization's like, eh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not mm-hmm. great. But that team, wow, they're right. really like knocking it out of the park. Very right? true. And so that, you know, how do you build that locally, right? Yeah. If you don't have control over the larger <laughs> culture. I, I, I completely agree with you, uh, but I do think it's a lot tougher to do that, especially because let's say you come into an organization and you have a team that's already been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And let's say a lot of them, they just want to punch, punch the clock. They check in, they check out. Like, oh, who's this person coming in here trying to do extra work? Let's just do our work and go home, Letty. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I have seen a, a bit of inertia when it comes to some of that stuff. But it is definitely possible, especially if, let's say, you're a, a hiring manager, you're building a new team. You can look for just the, the passion in, mm-hmm. in people. And I think it's definitely harder to do with an existing team. Uh, but if you do, that would be like an epic like success yeah. story. To well, turn. as a manager, that's right. like you know a great success, right? Absolutely. And you I hit it on the the nail on the head with uh, psychological safety. I think once you have that in your organization, it's a lot easier to improve the pre existing team if there was already one, because mm-hmm. right. you can be a lot more open with one another yep. without being concerned about how it's going to be perceived. Right. Yeah. So uh, my answer, I'm going to steal from both of you guys uh, on you know being a part of an Olympic team or trying to get there. Um, one piece of advice I got from a guy, uh, Matt Dunwoody, we worked together at Mandiant. He said uh, he went, he had a completely different job in the military, and he wanted to get into cybersecurity. And he went to school, sure, but he didn't have any experience. So what he did was he pulled a job rec from Mandiant and said, this is exactly what they're looking for, so I'm going to build my, my own personal curriculum to this job requirement. And he got the job. And I think that's such a cool, cool, like, premise to, to, to think about. So for all of you out there that want to come off to the Silicon Valley, like look at your, your dream company, look at the job recs that, that are out there, and then start like mapping the things that you're doing at work now to that job rec, and then also like what are the things that you're missing. Um, and then from the other standpoint of building a team, uh, which I think is, is really a legitimate uh, response, is uh, something that I've done in the past is really look at your your what your team uh, reputation is, your team reputation, or who you are as as a team. Like team identification is huge, because once you identify as a team and, I, and it's a high performance team that that you can stand behind, you almost don't want to let that team down. So in the Marine Corps, uh, high performance team, you don't want to let your your buddies down to the left and right of you, right? Because right. you don't want to be the the one person that's not performing. So finding that team identity is huge. Talk to your team. Go through. Uh, there's a book uh, by Simon Sinek, uh, Start With Why. Uh, the why is sort of the purpose of something. It could be an individual or it could be a team or a company. Really figure out what your why is for that team. And once you sort of all on the same page of what that team is, you start to build that team identity. But, yeah. Very nice. That's a, that's a nice combination. I, I'm definitely taking uh, some takeaways myself. So Awesome. Yeah. No. Thank you so much, uh, Marcus, for for being on the show. Uh, For people that want to learn more about the uh, research that you're doing, if they want to learn more about you, uh, how do people get in touch with you from maybe (laughs) social media or anything like that? Uh, Well, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm starting to do a little bit of more public posting. Like, Mm -hmm. this is something that through my career I was kind of, like, not doing very much public. 
Um, so I'm trying to get better about that and just share whatever thoughts I think might be valuable, right? So yeah. like, I'm gonna write more and more about this, uh, the belief function stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm actually going to a, a school that's like being held in Italy not because it's in Italy. It's just <laughs> 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 Although so that's a definitely a benefit. You're, so you're flying to Italy for the for the training? Yeah, it's actually like a bunch of professors, European professors, teaching about belief functions. And wow! So just a couple of days of like school, basically. That's awesome. So it should be interesting. Um, hope after that, I'll probably be bursting with ideas and like wanting to like implement this stuff. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's. It's cool. Like I, it, you know, I've been trying to study it on my own, and I'm just like, there's something I'm not quite getting. Like right. it's not gelling yet. Like mm. I can, I've, I've read all the, you know, how the rules of combination work and conditioning, like these different mathematical operations. But there's just some something I'm missing, and I don't quite know what it is yet. Like, yeah. like I haven't like uh, grasped the math yet. Mm -hmm. It's a little different. Like it's, you know. Even though I, I studied physics, but like that's a lot of uh, continuous math. Right. It's like differential equations and calculus and things like that. Right. And then in computer science, like there's a lot more discrete math. Yeah. Graph theory and, and right. uh, combinatorics and things. And then also this whole area of probability theory and statistics and belief functions is kind of related to probability. Right. And that was stuff that I. I mean, in, in physics, you study quant in quantum mechanics, there's a lot of probability involved. And so the expectation value actually is a big thing in quantum mechanics. Because, and well, I'm getting off on physics. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, in, in a quantum system, it actually does explore all the possible states simultaneously. And mm -hmm. so that's why the expectation value actually sort of has meaning in right. physics. Whereas, um, uh, you know, in our daily lives, like mm -hmm. we don't explore every possible version of this conversation, right? We had one version, right? And like it was, uh, it was very enjoyable. So thank you. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for being on the show. Yes. Uh, just like uh, when Dr. Rhonda Patrick is on the Joe Rogan experience, uh, I'm definitely going to have to listen to this show a couple times with a laptop right. just to. He's such a such a brilliant person. Uh, thanks for you know spending some time on a Saturday with us. Uh, we'd love to have you on again in the future. Talk about some other topics that we've talked about. Maybe we could have uh, an episode on movies because uh, both you and I are really okay. into movies. Ron doesn't watch movies. He hasn't watched a movie in twelve years or something like that. Uh, so we could. Uh, but teach you're him. you're busy reading books, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. All right. That's an acceptable under alter. under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. That is it for the show. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.